you look at the bottom list of episodes in T- TNG in general, but most especially in season four, this episode tends to show up a lot. And I can see why. <laughs> like, I went into this, this is the third time this happened in a row. It's like, oh man, I remember not liking this episode. And it's not, it, it, it's not a good episode. It's not the worst. Um, Ron Jones's music helps a little bit, but it's really, like, he basically only wrote the one song for this. And so it's just the one song repeated. Excuse me. Marina Sirtis does some good stuff with it. Uh, Gates McFadden has one good scene. Patrick Stewart has several good scenes. And that's about the extent of the positives. <sighs> I want to talk about quiet continuity really quick, if that's okay with you guys, before we really dive into the episode proper. Because, well, actually, before we do that, I just want to mention one other thing. I mentioned how a lot of viewers don't like this episode. Apparently, basically, no one making the episode liked it either. Marina Sirtis mentioned how much she hated being up on the rigging. Uh, Frakes didn't like it. Uh, Cliff Bowl didn't like it. Nobody liked it. Everyone was just like, yeah, it's a crap episode. Um, you know, whatever. Uh, Berman made a comment about it, but I'll save that for later, okay? So, quiet continuity. <clears throat> Quiet continuity is the kind of thing that you're not really supposed to notice, but helps. Now, I've actually mentioned this concept before, but I don't think I've ever given it the proper name. It's the kind of thing where there's just something in the construction of a work or the background of it that basically adds a degree of coherence to it, right? I've mentioned this with regards to TNG because we have similar extras, or I should say the same extras, playing the same roles across a large bundle of episodes. In other words we get, you know, the same ensign, or we get the same lieutenant over in engineering or whatever, and we don't really recognize that. You know, we don't, it's not like we're, our eyes are being drawn to that. Instead, it's more of a, you know, just kind of a background thing. That's quiet continuity. But there's other forms of quiet continuity as well. And I bring this up in this episode because it's actually relevant to the episode. Uh, this is something I could have talked about at any other point, but, well... I've mentioned several times what is effectively headcanon of the course of the Enterprise D as it goes throughout the seasons. And it can be loosely followed. However, if you were to follow each episode literally, the actual course wouldn't look, I guess it would have been like this, and then we go over here. Instead, it would be kind of like this, just bouncing around all over the place. And every now and again, it'd be bouncing around, and then it would bounce to someplace way off track, and then go right back to where it was earlier. This is because the writers of Star Trek TNG were, well, I shouldn't say the writers, Rick Berman, let's just put this where it is, because I can definitively say this is Rick Berman, was very anti-continuity. In fact, even over on Deep Space Nine, which is probably the most continuity show we had until season three of Enterprise, they were getting in trouble every now and again because of how much they were drifting into serialization. (laughs) So, Rick Berman was very anti-continuity. We're not 100% sure why. There's a lot of conflicting reports on that. Uh, Berman himself has said it's because he wanted to uh, please the suits, trying to make it look like it was their decision instead of his, which it is possible that that's true. I don't actually know 100%. I just don't trust a word out of that man's mouth. <clears throat> Excuse me. <laughs> I'm being slightly exaggerative. The point is, quiet continuity is the kind of thing that does take effort to maintain, legitimate and real effort but in my opinion, is basically always worth it. 
See, I've referred to setting continuity several times before, and TNG is actually pretty good at setting continuity. Even in this episode, they refer to a weapon that they're trying to use to free themselves that was used back in Best of Both Worlds. You know, little stuff like that. Uh, the wine that Picard pulled out from family in the episode uh, First Contact. You know, uh, obviously this is in the future, but after Inner Light, he's going to have that flute in future episodes. You know, he's going to have, and, and there's aspects and artifacts in his in his office or in his room that are from previous. Just stuff like that, right? The baseball on Cisco's desk. He's an, uh, an example for, from over on Deep Space Nine, right? That's setting continuity. It's 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 basically the same thing as quiet continuity, except on a. Well, that's not true. It's actually a different concept to, to quiet continuity, which is why I'm mentioning it. It's a similar concept because the idea is a bunch. It's a bunch of background stuff, you know, that it doesn't really draw attention to. It doesn't really matter. It's not serialized, but it helps to add that kind of background contiguousness, right? But quite the reason quiet continuity is different. It is because quiet continuity specifically has to do with times and places. In other words, trying to make a cohesive timeline and trying to make a cohesive geographic map effectively. Now, this is what TNG adamantly does not do. I've actually mentioned this before, I think, on a DS9 episode, where you know generally one season is supposed to be one year in universe, but that really doesn't line up. And if you actually sit down and map everything out, it really, really doesn't line up. And there's just continuity errors all over the place, you know. Because on average, each episode is supposed to cover, between beginning to end of this episode and the next episode, a rough breadth of about two weeks, give or take. Now, obviously, that's an average. But you get the idea. The problem is, well, it, that doesn't actually line up usually. And so you get issues like this episode where they stay at this place for over 10 days and basically nothing happens in those 10 days. And I'll talk more about that in a second. And by in a second, I mean several minutes. But the location thing is important too. So... I know they don't really have an official Star Trek map. The one I've always been using in my head is one uh, that's basically based off Star Trek Online's because I think it's one of the most co cohesive and you know coherent maps we've ever had of, of Star Trek, at least of the Alpha and Beta Quadrants. Obviously, there are actually multiple Star Trek maps, and none of them are official. But if you're doing this kind of show, what I would do, this is just my personal thoughts, is I would basically have a map and track, okay, episode 3 is here, episode 4 is here, episode 5 is here, and make it so that there is a definable route. And thus you can reference stuff that's near there or change, It's because it's not that hard to do this kind of thing. What you do, and this is speaking from a little bit of personal experience now, since I've had a little bit of experience working as a mainliner now, woo, is you have your actual writers put in placeholders for dates and locations. Those are the two big ones. This is all about the quiet continuity thing. And then when the episode actually is, is you know, ready to go, you sit down and you look at your map or you look at your timeline or whatever, and you say, okay, so this happens on this day, this happens on this day, and this happens in this location. You fill in the blanks, and then you go to the script, and they mention stuff and blah, blah, blah. It's the kind of stuff, again, it's, it's all background. None of this is really important. It's part of what I call polish, which I've, I've been a huge fan of polish my whole life, especially the Polish, but <laughs> Polish polish. I'm sorry, that's a dumb joke. <laughs> I do like Polish people. That's, that's not a joke. The Polish is what I live and breathe when it comes to fiction. It's what differentiates good from great and great from amazing, in my opinion. 
You can have a perfectly functional episode of Star Trek. But if you have those little details and those little nice snippets and aspects and, and all that, that right there, that is what is going to elevate an episode above and beyond. For me, personally. That's in my opinion, obviously. And that's why I espouse this kind of thing. And why I think TNG really could have used this kind of thing. Now, DS9 kind of side, sidestepped this problem for the most part because it's right here. So they don't really have to keep track of the geography all that much. Just a little bit. Just the surrounding region. But TNG basically went out of its way to be anti-quiet continuity. Even though it had good setting continuity. And what I mean by that is, well, again, if you were to map the path of the Enterprise, it would just be... Because no one was keeping attention. Because from the creator's perspective, no one was even keeping track of either variable, time, or date, or distance. So... If you want, because no one cared, basically, because they were trying not to be serialized. So if you want an episode where we're like, oh, we're, we're right near, you know, a star base, which is going to be happening, I believe, next episode, immediately following an episode where they're so far away that it's going to be a two-week trip just to get a communication, which is this episode, then that's fine. Even though, logically, that doesn't actually line up, does it? You see the problem. It's not a big deal, and I'm not trying to make it a big deal, even though I've been talking about it for several minutes. But I wanted to really get this out here because I feel that, in all honesty, this is probably, for me, the single biggest flaw of TNG as a series. Not counting Season 7, of course. Because it just takes me completely out of it. Because what I'm looking at now is a television episode. Rather than, you know, something that is pulling me in. It, polish is also part of immersion for me personally. You know, being able to feel that these events are more cohesive and more coherent helps believability, which helps my immersion. Again, just my opinion on the matter. But, so I've, I've kind of been banging on about this. Let's go ahead and address the two points that are attached to this. One is the 10 days thing and one's the subspace thing, because this episode just completely throws both location and timeline out the window. How many of you guys have played Dragon Age 2? I actually don't know how many of you are going to have, or have heard me talk about it, or watched my lore run of it, incomplete though it is. I mention that because Dragon Age 2, it didn't really quite make a meme, per se, but I'll never forget the three days later, or three years later thing that Dragon Age 2 did several times. And I, I've never stopped making fun of that or complaining about that even to this very day, because I feel it is a massive flaw in the narrative. Why? Not because the time passed, that's not the problem itself, but rather the fact that nothing seems to have happened in the intervening period. In other words, three days pass, and yet, for everything we see, hear, and interact with, it effectively has been maybe a day. Three years pass, and it's been a day, right? That's the problem. There's only one, that's not true, there's one time gap that, that it shows that at least some things have changed. It's after the expedition. Other than that, all the time gaps are just, oh, hey, it's you again. What's going on? As if we had just talked to them yesterday. Nothing's changed. Nothing indicates in any way that time has passed other than a title card that shows up. The same problem happens in this episode. Ten days later. You know, ten, it's been four days now since we've been here. And, every, and then it cuts to scenes where they're trying to deduce what's going on. As if no time has passed. As if they've been doing nothing for the last four days. And then Picard comes up and says it's been ten days, so another six days on top of that. And once again, everyone's acting as though nothing's changed and nothing's happened. They're just now finding out certain things. They're just now getting access to this. Now, we know why the time gap exists. It's the same general reason existed over in Dragon Age 2. Because for the purposes of the plot, they needed to show that a sufficient amount of time had passed. 
the whole purpose of the plot is the dream thing, right? It can't have effect on people if people haven't been not dreaming for several days. Otherwise, it's just, you know, it's, oh no, we can't dream, but we haven't been to bed yet. No, it doesn't matter at that point. So, what I'm trying to say is the script is rough. <laughs> it could have used a few more polishing passes. So the timeline is just doesn't really work. The second problem is the distance thing. We are not. We have sent off a distress signal. However, it's going to take two weeks in order for us to get a response back. What? Ignoring the fact that this is Star Trek, where people can from DS9 contact Earth and have a real-time communication back and forth. Let's just ignore that for a moment. The, the the base principle here is that subspace is way faster than warp drive, right? Which means, if we are to take this as read, as in one week there and one week back for the trip, as far as communication, that means it's going to take one week times X. I can pull figures from the actual uh, technical manual if you, if you want me to, but it's going to be quite a bit longer than one week to, for the Enterprise to get anywhere based on that, to the nearest starbase or to the nearest ship. Which would mean the Enterprise is way the hell out in the middle of nowhere. Which, again, doesn't line up with previous episodes or future episodes. And you kind of see the problem that I mentioned with this quiet continuity. Because the moment you notice it, it's like, well, hang on a second. It's like, let me, I'm sorry, one last parallel, then I swear I'll stop talking about quiet continuity for this episode. How many of you guys have been to Disneyland? Now, if you've ever been to Disneyland... You're not supposed to think that that's really there, right? Like, that doesn't really look like the castle. That doesn't really look like, you know, it's a small world is what's coming to my mind immediately because it's fake. Now, I'm not saying Disneyland is bad. That's not the point. Disneyland is its own thing. But it is definitively fake. The entire air and atmosphere of Disneyland is extremely fake. Probably on purpose, but the fact remains. And that's what I feel like bad, uh, uh, quiet continuity is like. Because at every point in time, I am reminded that I'm going through a ride rather than trying to feel like I'm actually involved in the experience. Does that make any sense? <laughs> it's the same general equivalent. I am watching a TV show rather than seeing a sequence of events that I could believe was actually happening. You know, my suspension of disbelief has been halted by the fact that I can see the rivets. You know what I mean? That's the equivalent of this, and that's why these things kind of pull me out of it. And I wouldn't be talking this much about this quiet continuity thing, but A, I've been wanting to talk about it for a while, and this is a good episode to talk about it, and B, I don't have much to say about this episode. It's just not that good. The mystery of the episode is frankly lackluster, because the, in, in contrast to Clues, the mystery of this episode is, you know, what's happening to us? Oh, it's a Tygen Thrift, but that's not the answer. Oh, it's the aliens, but they're not evil. Oh, okay. <laughs> what? Like, there's no build-up to the mystery. It's just, we have no idea what's going on. We have no idea what's going on. We have no idea what's going on. And then all of a sudden, there's a scene where Data just explains, we're in a Tykens Rift. Just, screw that up. Like that. Just, hey, we're in a Tykens Rift. Okay. And then, we have no idea what's going on. We have no idea what's going on. And then, all of a sudden, Troy hears the message. like, of course, it's a message. It's just revealed. There's no, there's no build-up. There's no anything. It's just, it's not very well constructed. It's worth noting that the writers who worked on this episode kind of agree with me on this. As I said, nobody liked this episode apparently. Um, so let's start. Let's go through the episode proper. Right at the beginning, you know, Troy is really vague for some reason. I, I'm not sure why. And then they go over, and it's like, hey, there's a ship where a bunch of people killed each other. Question question. Why is it 
that the computer didn't automate anything to keep track of what was going on with its crew. Actually, I bring that up to kind of bring up a point. Some of you may remember that over on Voyager, which is, of course, several years from this, and on a more advanced ship, the Intrepid class, the ship automatically scans and monitors the brain activity of everyone involved, which may sound a little bit creepy, but i got to be completely honest, makes a lot of sense given how many times we've seen mind-altering stuff in Star Trek, right? I mean, it's, a, it's a common, so a common thing. Even I've been bringing it up. So maybe that's why... <laughs> Maybe incidents like this are why Voyager monitors everyone's brain patterns all the while. They also mentioned the crew of 34. In fact, they mentioned that number several times, which I'm bringing up to you because it means, well, that this Miranda-class ship only had 34 people on it. I don't know. I just I felt like commenting on it because it feels like a really small crew. Even the old Constitution had 100-plus, right? Anyways, um, there's a lot of clunky dialogue in this episode. I'm just going to summarize that. I actually have several examples written down, but it's like five or six, and then I stopped because it just kept happening. There's a lot of moments where someone says something that doesn't mean anything. There's a line, and I'll, I'll give you an example. Jordy says, this better work or we're not going to last much longer. That is what's called an unnecessary line. It, it's, it's, it literally serves no purpose other than to either give someone a line, which Jordy didn't need because he already had several lines, or to pad out the episode. There is zero need for a character who is in a dire situation, who have been in a dire situation for several minutes of screen time at this point, to say, hey, we're in a dire situation. There's also a lot of really clunky exposition. Uh, Crusher herself, as much as I like Gates McFadden, has several scenes where she basically just says, here's what's going on. And it, in almost every case, it's something that we could have been shown instead. Let me give you a direct example again. She tells us the mental state of the, the captain was deteriorating. Then she shows us a video of the mental state of the captain deteriorating. You see the problem? <laughs> and if you really wanted to say, well, they only show us the one video, you're, you're right. They could have shown us two or three or five, you know, however much they wanted to do this, because they could have shown the descent. In fact, funnily enough, uh, this exact same tactic that I am mentioning was used over on Voyager. Uh, Bliss, I believe, was the name of that episode with the, the space pitcher plant. Because we see Janeway's, uh, Seven, I want to say, sees Janeway's uh, di uh, dialogue as she's going through her captain's log. And it shows the change over time going through her. It was actually a very effective exposition tool. And I, I thought we could do something like that. But anyways. Then, uh, well. Then we see Troy doing this through space. Well, better space than this. Um, as she's going to the two eyes in the dark, one moon circles, you know, that whole thing. Now, I don't like this episode, but I have to admit, one of the things that always amused me is how many people constantly bang on only one point when it comes to bashing this episode, and it's the effects for her flying. You know, Marina Sirtis didn't like it, the director didn't like it, the people working on it didn't like it. They actually had, this was actually an eight-day shoot episode, and I've talked about that before, how most episodes have you know, an average of five to seven days of shoot time, and that's, that's expensive. The more days it is, the more horrible. But you also need so many times, because that was the problem with Shades of Grey. They only had three, right? So this was an eight-day shoot, and the eighth day was entirely second unit stuff. I've, I've described second unit stuff before, but in brief, the second unit deals with stuff that doesn't necessarily need the main director and the main cast there. Uh, action scenes, long panning shots of terrain, that kind of stuff, you, you see this in movies all the time, I guarantee it, is the kind of thing that a second unit will usually deal with. 
So the second unit team actually had an entire day of shooting because of the effects of the cloud thing. And everyone hated it. Now, having watched it again, I have to admit, yeah, it's terrible. It's, <laughs> I, I can't be hipster on this one, guys. Sorry. No, it's crap. And what's funny, though, is it's not complete crap. The effects themselves are actually pretty good. Like, it, remove Troy from the scene, insert joke here, and the effects of the clouds and the slow swirling and the, the, the binary stars in the distance and, the, like, the weird ripples and, and stray spider string going through it, that's good stuff. What I would have done, and I know this would have been a little more difficult to pull off, but at the same time, given they already had budgeted for the additional days of shooting, I think they could have managed this. What I would have done is instead of having her doing this thing, which just really didn't work, have something similar to, well, let me use a direct parallel. Later on in the episode, there's a visual effect that is extremely effective. It's when Crusher is going through the morgue trying to figure out what's going on, and all of a sudden, everyone in the morgue is just sitting straight upright, stock still. Now, that is a brilliant amount of visual imagery right there. It is the perfect kind of contextual creepy and contextual horror that, is, that I, I tend to enjoy, right? So that's awesome. And, and of course, it's a great scene. It's, it's, it's the one scene Gates McFadden really nails because she just... The, the amount to which it's bothering her is all over her face. And... Something like that is what I would do, because the whole point is that type of contextual horror is taking the mundane and altering it slightly, right? So rather than having Troy flying through space in a tunnel of clouds, keep most of the cloud effect, but have it be on her ceiling. Have her wake up, wherever she is, and she looks up and she sees the twin lights, and the ceiling is just the cloud, right? And... This would take a little bit of uh, directorial trickery with regards to camera angles, but as long as you used specific angles like this and this, so that for the most part we're only we're seeing the majority of either cloud or set, and the bleed off could then be properly blurred so it doesn't look like it's you know an effect bleeding over the thing. We could then see she looks up and her ceiling in her quarters is this giant cloud effect, and she's just looking up horrified as as this the swirling vortex is above her. I think that would have worked a lot better. It wouldn't involve the wire work, which apparently Marina Sirs absolutely hated. You know, food for thought. So then we find out they're two weeks away from subspace. I'm not even going to cover that again. Uh, the ship is drained before energy is useful. That's an interesting writer's trick. I've, said, I've talked before how difficult it is to challenge the characters of Star Trek because of the amount of technology they have available to them. The solution here was basically, so it's going to drain the energy, but only when we use it which is a neat trick because it means the ship isn't really in danger in the strictest sense of the word except when it tries to escape. You know, the Chinese finger trap thing, which I feel like I've heard that before. Anyways. <laughs> so, it's a neat little trick, but I have to mention this right here because this is when this occurred to me. How many other people were thinking of the episode Unnatural Selection when they saw this episode? Or the episode The Naked Now when they saw this episode? Because I've, I've always felt there's vibes of both here. They, they have the come across the crew, something horrible happened to the crew, we have to figure out what happened to the crew, oh my god, it's a medical crisis, right? You know, you can kind of see some parallels there. I, I, I know I'm stretching a little bit, but I don't know. It kind of bothers me when Star Trek does stuff like this. This happened over in Voyager as well, I, I pointed this out even, uh, when it would basically repeat a crisis. 
And I've already spoken against the whole concept of the crisis of the week. I get it, but I, I still speak against it. My opinion has not changed on that. But it gets even worse when the crisis of the week is something that we've already faced more than once on this show. Uh, Picard does a Patrick Stewart does a really good job of portraying someone who is stretched thin and I stress that very specifically because if you tell an actor to act tired they will act tired if you tell an actor to act bleary well, that's a little bit different assuming they're good enough to do this and if you tell an actor to act like they're just kind of their, their sanity is being stretched thin then you're going to get a third performance and no offense to the actors on this show but most of the actors just come across as tired. Patrick Stewart manages to really, really well get across the idea of being stretched thin, like someone who is just slowly losing his grasp on sanity. He's not tired, he's not out of it, he's just struggling, like in every scene. He does a really good job of it, and I want to give him praise for that. I also love the bit with the hallucinations, so I want to talk about the hallucinations really quick. Now, I don't mean anything by this, but how many of you guys have ever had actual hallucinations? Now, I have, but that's because I've been under the knife several times. I've gone in for surgery twice in my life. And the after effects of those drugs and the, uh, oh my god, the morphine, there we go, that you, they, they put you under, <sighs> it's actually kind of terrifying. Now, I don't know about you guys, and again, personal preference, I don't like being out of control of myself. It's one of the reasons I never got into drugs, alcohol, or anything like that, because I just don't enjoy the idea of being out of control of myself. And of course, because I've experienced it thanks to surgeries, I know I don't enjoy that sensation. But what I will never forget is the hallucinations, because it was, and, and, and some of you will understand what I mean by this, of course, because you'll have experienced it. You know it's fake. You know with total certainty that what you're hearing isn't there or what you're seeing isn't there. Or in some cases what you're feeling. Sensation, right? And yet, it's so adamant that your body is basically automatically reacting to it as if the stimulus was actually there. And that's what makes them so damn dangerous and makes it so difficult. Why people have, why they have monitoring, why they have nurses check on you every now and again. is because it is such a dangerous problem that you need someone to be able to coach you through that, right? And so I actually feel a lot of sympathy for a lot of the actors in this, or the actors, excuse me, the characters in this episode, especially Picard. My favorite one by far is when the ceiling is slowly coming down on him, which was a bit of visual trickery with the camera. Good work with that, by the way. They even did the lighting on Picard different to indicate that he was getting closer to the lights at the top of the thing, which was a nice touch. So that kind of thing, you, intellectually speaking, your brain, somewhere in your brain is saying, this, the ceiling isn't crushing me. But all of the input is telling you that that ceiling is getting closer and closer, and you almost can't help but react. It's one of the reasons, I, again, I liked the crusher scene with the, the sitting up in the morgue, because it was only sheer will that she managed to push herself through this, because intellectually, this is a hallucination, and she knows that. Still bothers her, but right? So it's an interesting balance, and I just wanted to comment on that briefly. I also like the audio one. Uh, dee you know, he his, his gets up, there's no one there, and he just starts ignoring it. And then you hear, knock, knock, knock. Come? <laughs> now, Picard actually admits, again, good scene, that he's going to rely on data for this. Given the amount of pride that Picard has in being the infallible captain, 
Just admitting this has got to bother him. Then he adds on to that the personal story of having to watch his grandfather slowly succumb to what is effectively delusions. Uh, He doesn't actually say the word dementia, but that's implied. I myself have actually lost one of my grandparents to dementia specifically, so I, I completely feel that. You know, that there's just nothing to explain. Someone you've known basically all your life not recognizing you anymore. I lost a grandmother to Alzheimer's, actually, so I guess I've got a twofer on that one. So you can see the kind of horror at the idea that that's happening to him. Again, Patrick Stewart nails it because he's Patrick Stewart. (laughs) I know I praise his acting a lot, but I wouldn't if he wasn't a great actor. The point being, there's a lot of, there's a couple of really good, quiet character scenes like that which really help to buoy an otherwise unremarkable episode, which is why I wanted to comment on it. So, um, I'm going to quote you something here. I like to pull out this book for quotes so you don't think that I'm uh, misidentifying. Whoops, it's actually the previous page. My bad. Uh, Here we go. Blah, 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 blah. Sleep disorder stories are are the most commonly pitched stories we have here, says Rick Berman. Okay, I'm going to stop right there because I don't believe that for a second. The sleep disorder was that our people were not getting enough REM sleep and they were going mad, which is in fact what would happen. It was all medically accurate, but it was kind of hard to follow and got convoluted. I don't think there was anything very terrifying in it. Okay, so first of all, uh, if lack of REM sleep worked as described, this would be absolutely goddamn horrifying. And to completely contradict him there, I think both Stewart and McFadden get across very well how horrifying this really is. Second point. That quote fascinated me enough that I decided to spend a little time looking into the actual medical data on lack of REM sleep. You want to know what I found? Nothing. There is no conclusive research as of when I have did the research for this, which was today, uh, as to whether or not REM sleep has a significant impact on the body or the mind in any substantial way. Theoretically, it should, by what we understand of the brain, which is, of course, not that much, but at the same time, canonical stu- empirical, excuse me, empirical studies have shown that it actually has no effect, that there are people who basically do not experience REM sleep and are fine. <laughs> now, I point that out because I know it's Star Trek, but when you're trying to base it on something that is real in real life, I mean, science fiction still has the science part of it, you know? There, there's a bubble there. But I found it funny that they, they couched this, apparently, on actual medical data, which, I mean, maybe people thought differently back, back when this was actually made? I don't know. What I find doubly interesting about that, though, is they could have gone a different route with this. They could have just made this straight-up sleep deprivation, the inability to actually sleep at all. That, of course you'd say, well, that would change the structure of the episode. Not really, because we actually do have a lot of hard medical data on sleep deprivation, and it doesn't just make you tired. It fundamentally changes the way your brain chemistry works. If you are forced for some reason, usually you know, some kind of chemical reason, to not sleep for an extended period of time, your brain just doesn't work the same after a while. And that could lead to the same kind of effects. Uh, so we've got the irritability, we've got the jealousy from O'Brien, we've got the hallucinations, definitely in a side side effect of um, of sleep deprivation. We've got the audio hallucinations. Uh, we've got the, the 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 slow delusions of Randra forgetting stuff and spacing out. All of these things are actual, real, real life consequences of sleep deprivation. Why not just make it so that nobody can sleep? I know this sounds like a weird thing to bring out, but they're the ones who called attention to it, not me. (laughs) 
Anyways, moving on, moving on. Uh, looking at my notes here. The wharf suicide scene is another one of those good character scenes in a vacuum. It doesn't quite fit up with the rest of the episode in any way, although it's good to know that the security team on Enterprise is once again useless, only showing up when the crisis has already been averted. But I did like that scene. I did like that scene. Dorn managed to do some good stuff with that scene. Sirtis managed to do some good stuff with that scene. And we see that what's bothering Worf... To put it simply, I've heard one person complain that if Worf was afraid, he wouldn't kill himself. And to which I say, no, of course he wouldn't. Remember, this is not Worf who is afraid. This is Worf who is insane. This is Worf who is sleep-deprived. And as such, his brain just isn't working right anymore. And so he is, he is legitimately in a state of what I would call despair. Because despair is past fear. Fear is, I'm scared of that. But, and then insert response here. Despair is, I'm scared of that, and that's the end of the sentence, because there's nothing you can do about it. You know, silence is the sound of despair, right? Thus, the idea of Worf being in a state where he feels he can't do anything about this situation. Well, at that point, he's not really a warrior, is he? So it makes perfect sense to me. And it was a good character scene, like I said. As a side note, I like how Hagen, the other Betazoid basically can't talk out loud anymore. That's just a nice little touch, that a Betazoid, when they're when render, rendered insensate, can only speak mentally, that their vocal voice has basically died out. You know, I, I just kind of like that. As an aside, though, why is every species affected basically equally by this? We know with total certainty that at least humans and Klingons are. And there's more than humans and Klingons on this ship. Anyways... Data makes a quick comment saying that there's no technology to block telepathy. Why? I know that sounds like such a strange comment, but telepathy has exist in, in the Federation since before it was called that. <laughs> the Vulcans, right? Just to go way back. Why has no one ever bothered to develop some kind of anti-telepathy tech? Don't tell me they couldn't. Maybe, maybe Section 31 has it. Um, and then, and I'm going to just kind of wrap this up quickly because the episode does that. It's so strange. So, the epi first of all, Guinan shoots, and it, oh my god, it was an embarrassing special effect. I feel like they blew all their money on the shooting, because it, there's just sudden obvious GIF of, of sparks flying off the, the gun. And it was, it was kind of a neat scene for Guinan, but otherwise it was just, what is the hell with that, with that special effect? Oh yeah, apparently Guinan isn't affected by this either, because she's Guinan. I'm actually okay with that, but whatever. <laughs> Why don't they ever dis discuss destroying the Britain, by the way? They need a big explosion to get away, right? So, wouldn't a matter-antimatter reactor self-destructing, like a warp core breach, wouldn't that be a really big bang to get them loose? It just bothered me the whole time. They never even bring it up. They never even come back for the Britain, because what happens is they push the hydrogen in, and then they failed. Fake out, no, it's actually cool. They get away, go to sleep, the end. And the episode just stops, just out of nowhere. It was really weird. It felt like they had kind of dragged things out and dragged things out. No, we're at the end. Stop. This script needed a couple more passes. You know what I mean? I'm sorry for talking so much about it. I swear I only have long episodes when I have an episode I really, really like or really, really don't. <laughs> Thankfully, we're getting into some better stuff next time, at which point I will see you there. <laughs>